in worship to our Lord and our God, we want to continue to study how to resolve conflict biblically. So we'll get back to that this morning, looking at the issue of anger, controlling our anger. Before we do that, uh, we're going to pray. And I just also wanted to highlight a few things from the eBridge regarding the resources. So I send that out by email because they have uh, hyperlinks to some of the articles. So the printed version, if you look in the back, there's that recommended resources. It just gives you a little snippet. Um, but the hyperlink I can't put in a hard copy, not yet anyway. So um, anyway, so you have to have the email version of that to get the to to go read those articles that are resources. So if you're not getting that, be sure to give me your email address, send that to me, so I can get that to you. There's a special article on there I want to highlight on the podcast on the theology of suffering. You know, Christmas is a wonderful time of the year for many many people. But it can be a very lonely and uh, discouraging time for many other people who have lost a, a spouse or a child or, or a parent, um, going through lots of different things, uh, health struggles, relational struggles. So that, that podcast, though it's long, it's like three hours long, just divide it up into half-hour segments and you'll get through it in a week. But it is is very important that you understand what God does with suffering and how to think about those times of suffering. And even if you're not going through suffering, you know someone who is, so listen to it so you can help them. So all that, all that's in there. Um, and then for those that are on live stream, that's the Just Thinking podcast. It's their latest one, The Theology of Suffering. Just, just search for that on the internet and you'll, you will find it. Right? Well, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for just your work your humility, your love of becoming man. God, becoming man. What a mystery. You did that to redeem us, to die for our sins, and to redeem us not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And you're at work in our lives so that we would walk in newness of life in obedience to you. Please help us to do that today. Lord, as we reflect upon your incarnation and the songs we, we sang, Lord, help us to reflect upon your kingship and lordship even now by how we live our lives, by how we deal with conflict in a, in a way that, that glorifies you. In particular, Lord, help us to learn how to control our anger when times of, of conflict or potential conflict come. Please just be at work in us, helping us to be submissive to your word and to be doers of your word. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, anger is a universal problem in our, in our sin-stained world. No one escapes it. No one is independent from it. You've experienced it many times, and you will continue to experience it, be either on the giving end of it or the receiving end of it, until the Lord comes back, right? or until he calls you to be with him. In this way, it's sort of like death. You can't escape it. But unlike death, death you only physical death you only experience once, anger is something that is going to just keep coming back. You want to keep experiencing it because we live in this sin-filled world. And those that are not prepared to handle anger well are going to experience a lot of difficulty. You're going to destroy relationships around you either either because of how you respond or how someone else is responding to you and yet the scriptures are not silent on this 
Scriptures often speak about anger and, and how to deal with it. And as believers, we must learn how to deal with our anger in a way that, that doesn't blow up the conflict, but, but instead soothes the conflict. And, and God uses his spirit within us and his word to guide us to help, to help us to be peacemakers, not peace breakers. You know, anger feeds conflicts. It separates good friends. It destroys churches and it spoils our most intimate relationships. You know, anger is one of the reasons why people who, who thought they would always be in love soon hate each other and never want to see each other again. Now, take Cain, for example. The son of Adam and Eve. He got angry at God. Because he offered to God a sacrifice that he thought was acceptable. Uh, it, it was not acceptable to God. He, God had made clear to him the requirements of a sacrifice. And God did not accept Cain's sacrifice. All the while accepting Abel's sacrifice. So Cain got jealous, jealous of his brother. He's really just angry at God. And to get back at God, he ended up killing his brother. But before he did that, God came to him. And God told him, he warned him. Cain was very angry and God warned him that, that sin was crouching at the door. It's like a, like a lion ready to pounce on him and devour him. And, and if he would just repent and ask God for help, he, he, he would change and God would change him. But he didn't listen. And the result was, that he went and killed his brother. And it, it, now we might think that, that Abel got the worst of the deal. And physically that's true. But, but the scriptures speak of Abel as being righteous. The Lord will take care of Abel and raise Abel up. Cain went on a path of denying God. Never to be returned. So it was very dangerous. And, th and that's the way it is for us as well in our relationships. There are times where. Anger is right there. Sin is crouching at the door, ready to attack. And we must be on guard and listen to what the Lord tells us to do so that we will not be handling anger in a way that, that kind of blows up the conflict. Now, during this message, we're going to use a, an example family. We'll call them Jack and Jill. And I'll refer to Jack and Jill a, a few times in the message. Jack was saved when he was 17. And he met Jill when he was 24. They've been married 11 years. And in those 11 years, God has blessed them with steady employment, a comfortable home, a health, and two healthy children. In many ways, Jack and Jill are living the, the, the American life for, for the middle class family. They're active, fam they're active members of their local church. And yet beneath the veneer of prosperity and success, things are not right. Be, be beneath this veneer lurks a long-standing relational conflict, uh, dynamics of anger. Jack's a high achiever, and he, he is a hard worker. He drives himself and his family to perform up to his standards. Uh, when he doesn't get the results he wants, either his wife's affection, his supervisor's approval, his children's obedience, Jack explodes. Jill, too, has an anger problem, though she rarely erupts. Instead, she resents Jack for the demands he places upon her and their children. Uh, at times, she even feels betrayed by God. She murmurs to herself, why did you let me marry this man? 
and and she she resonates with the frustrated wife who says something like when I was married, I was looking for a great deal. Instead, I got an ordeal, and now I'm looking for a new deal. Right? And that's the sad reality of many marriages today. Jack and Jill are destroying themselves. They're destroying their most intimate relationships by uncontrolled anger. One responding by blowing up, the other responding by rejecting. And But whether the anger is hot as fire or cold as ice... It's still destructive to relationships. In the midst of a conflict, you and I need to learn how to control our anger so that we glorify God instead of sinning against Him and that we become a blessing to those around us instead of being a curse to them. Now that's what we're going to look at today, controlling your anger. Now how do we do that? Well, the first thing I want to cover is basically some definitions. To control your anger, you must understand what it is and where it comes from. You must understand what it is and where it comes from. This is, this is so essential because our world today will tell you that, that, that anger is just, it's just a feeling. And can you control your feelings? The answer is what? No. You usually can't control how you feel. That's the key here. Our world defines that. Merriam-Webster Dictionary says that anger is a strong feeling of displeasure and usually of antagonism, meaning you want to strike back at the person. Cambridge English Dictionary defines anger as a strong feeling that makes you want to hurt someone or to be unpleasant because of something unfair or unkind that has happened, unquote. Psychology Today describes anger as one of the basic human emotions. Again, the, the common denominator there is it's anger is an emotion. It's a feeling. If anger is an emotion or feeling, it can't be controlled. And so you're not to be blamed for your anger. Right? That's what our world is telling us. That's the message they're sending out. You know, if somebody's angry, it's because of something somebody did to them. They really can't control that. Now, the Bible doesn't define anger for us in, in a clear, concise way. But it does give us a picture of, of what anger is. The, the scriptures show us the complex nature of anger. It's probably would be easier for you to describe anger. Like show me a picture, an illustration of it. You know it when you see it. Rather than provide a, a concise uh, definition of it. Anger involves your emotions. Your thinking. Your decisions. Your behaviors. Your beliefs. Your motives. Your perceptions. And your desires. It involves all of us. Robert Jones, a member of the Associ- uh, Association of Biblical Counselors um, and professor of biblical counseling, has written a helpful book called Uprooting Anger, Biblical Help for a Common Problem. Uprooting Anger, Biblical Help for a Common Problem. I highly recommend the book if you want to read more about it. And in that book, he carefully defines Anger, and I think the definition is very helpful, so I'm going to give that to you this morning. He says this, our anger is our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Just cover it again. You'll hear it multiple times this morning. Our anger is our whole personed response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Evil. Now, the, the definition has five essential parts, and we don't have time to like dig deep in them, but I do want to highlight each of those parts. 
Anger is first an active response. It's an active response. Anger is something we do. It's not something we have. Our angry response can be red hot, a red hot explosion or it can be an icy cold rejection. Either way, it is an active response. You're not passive and it's a response. It's something you do, not something you have. Secondly, our anger is a whole personed active response. That means our whole being, it involves the entirety of our being, engages our whole person. It's not disconnected. You can't be angry and only be like have one part of you be angry. It, it is all of you. When you are angry, everything is angry. Your tone of voice, your demeanor, your body language, everything. Thirdly, our anger is a response against something. We are responding to a certain circumstance. It, it, our anger reacts against some provocation. Now, it's important to note that the provocation is just the stage for anger. It's actually not the cause or the source. That's so important for us to see. Right? So we are in anger. We are responding to something. But that response is merely the stage for, for, to bring out something that's within us. It's not the cause of it. I think a good illustration of that is, is uh, tea and, and water. If you put tea in water, you don't really get too much. If it's just cold water or room temperature water, your tea is not going to be very good. So, so what do you got to do? You got to heat the water up in order to bring the tea out. But if you just heat water up without the tea bag, you don't get tea, right? You actually have to have the tea and you have to have the, the tea in hot water to bring the tea out. And you get tea because there's tea leaves in the tea bag. So it's a good illustration that, that the provocation is like the hot water. And the anger is like the tea leaves. It's coming out from within you. It's coming out. But the, the, the stage is, is uh, the circumstance, the provocation is just the stage for that. But it is a response. We are responding to something. Fourthly, our anger involves negative moral judgment. Our anger involves negative moral judgment. We're making that judgment. It, it arises from our judicial sense of what's right and what's wrong. That's why you react sometimes when you see something that, that's, just, that's just not right. Not right. You, say, you say that. That's not right. And there's a lot of that going on right now, especially in our government. So you see that. But it is a moral judgment. It, it functions under the larger, larger dynamic of judgmentalism. Now, when we say it's a negative moral judgment, I'm not saying that it's always wrong. What we're saying is that the response is, is um, it, it stands opposed to the perceived evil. You're perceiving some kind of evil and you're opposing that evil. And that's why uh, the, the definition of this is it's a negative moral judgment. It's not that the judgment is always wrong or evil, but just that it's always, we always oppose that. We see it as evil. Um, it's something that must be opposed. It must be uh, rejected. It must be punished. That's, that's our response to that. And fifthly, our anger involves a judgment against perceived evil. We, are, we look at a situation and we perceive it to be wrong and, and evil and we react that way. Now, our perception could be right or it could be wrong. Right? So sometimes we, we get angry over something that is truly evil. And sometimes we get angry over something that, that really, if God looked at it, isn't truly evil. It's just offensive to us. Right? 
So again, just to cover that definition, our anger is the whole whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. And again, if you want to dig deeper, get uh, get Robert Jones's book on uprooting anger. Now, what is the source of anger? As I've said, it's it's not the the provocation in and of itself. The provocation is just the stage. It's just the surroundings. It's just the hot water. The source of it is our hearts. And yet our world encourages us just to blame others. We, we blame the setting. We blame the circumstance. We blame the person. When you're driving, you know, and you're, you're going down and someone cuts you off and you get angry, you know, you say, it's his fault. He should, have, he should not have cut me off. I mean, he, he should have looked before he came over. Now, he should have, not deny that. But is, it a, is, it, is that the reason you got angry about it? Or when you get angry at circumstances, like, you know, you, you, drove, you drove to work this week and three times you had a flat tire. Right? What happens the third time? You're about ready to scream, right? You're so angry and, and you're blaming the circumstances. It's really the heart, your heart. And when I talk about heart, we're not talking about the, the pump, the literal pump in your chest. The heart is a word the Bible uses to speak about your soul, your spirit, who you really are at the core of your being. Right? That's, that's the, what God uh, died to save, and it's your heart that God has transplanted if God ha- resides within you, if you're saved and redeemed. And it's your heart the Lord is conforming and changing. And it's from the heart that, that this anger flows from. Listen to Jesus uh, explain this in Matthew 15. To his disciples. Matthew 15 verses 18 and 19. I'll just read it. Jesus said. That, but the things that proceed out of the mouth. Come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murders. Adulteries. Sexual immoralities. Thefts. False witness. Slanders. In that passage. There are several activities that Jesus mentions. That, that relate to anger. Evil thoughts, murders, and slander. And this is not an exhaustive list. So Jesus is just saying those evil things that, that the world will say are outside of you are actually inside of you. Because the context was Jesus, the, the Pharisees were criticizing the disciples of Jesus for not wash, ceremonially washing their hands before they ate. And, and so they said, Jesus, aren't your disciples defiling themselves because they didn't? eat with, with ceremonially clean hands before they ate. And Jesus said, ah, oh, it's actually not what goes in the mouth that defiles you. It's what's already there. And it's what comes out. Right? So that anger is, resides within us that God wants to root out. So, and understand too that anger is the seedbed of murder. Every single person in this room has been sinfully angry. And yet I, I'll ask you, do you consider yourself to be guilty of murder? We'll, we'll say, well, well, no, we're not, we're not murderers. Right? But understand that Jesus connects sinful anger with murder. Right? Now, it doesn't carry the same ramifications here on earth. But Jesus said it's the same root. Right? It's the same root. How many of you have been so angry that if you could have, and, and if you hadn't been restrained, you might kill someone if you thought you could get away with it? Right? Right? That's, that's true of almost all of us in this room, I would think. Right? It's shameful to even admit that. Right? I, as your pastor, have been that mad sometimes. Right? That's just wrong. 
the Lord wants us to see that this is something that must change. Um, God wants to change us. Um, and and the, the reference I, I give you in Matthew 21, maybe just turn there so that you have some place to, to ground what I'm saying. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, I'll just read verses 21 to 26. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the, into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. In verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent while at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So understand that, that our anger is controllable. It's a response that God wants to control, wants us to control, and it flows from our heart. Anger is something we do, not something that we have. Now, I want to mention that, that evil, murderous, and slanderous thoughts are characteristic of sinful anger. Left unchecked, these angry thoughts will lead to murderous thoughts. And it will lead to evil actions, perhaps even actual murders and slander. Now, Cain, Cain's murder of his brother was obviously a case of sinful anger. But I want to point out that not all anger is sinful. Not all anger is evil. We know this because we know that God is always righteous. He's always holy. He always does what is right. And yet the Bible often tells us that God is angry. If you just do a search in your English Bible on your computer or something for the word angry. It appears nearly 270 times in the New American Standard Bible. And a lot of those occasions, I didn't count them, but a lot of those occasions are talking about God being angry over sin. That was rather surprising. But compare that now. And we'll talk, bring this in in a minute, but I want to bring it in now while I'm talking about this. Compare how often the scriptures say that God is angry and yet he is described as what? Being slow to anger. That, that should bring immediate praise to your God. Because if God was not slow to anger, because his anger is righteous, right? he would have wiped us out long ago. He would have judged us long ago. But because he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, quick to forgive, right? we, we are recipients of his grace and of his mercy, of his salvation. But, but God has spoken of as frequently being angry. Let me give you just a few examples. When, when the Lord was working with the Israelites, drawing them out of Egypt, taking them through the, the, the desert, uh, through the wilderness, they complained about manna. They got tired of eating manna. They longed for the meat of Egypt. And so the Lord gave that to them. You're probably familiar with that story. Numbers 11 is where that's found. 
But in Numbers 11.33, it says this, While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. That's righteous anger. Numbers 12.9. Just give you another example where Miriam and Aaron complained against Moses because Moses took a Cushite woman as his wife. And they were angry with Moses. And then Numbers 12, 9 says, So the anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. God departed. That that glory cloud departed from them for a time because of their sin. God is angry at sinners. Not just at the sin. He's angry at sinners who are unreconciled to him who continue in their rebellious ways. Now, Miriam and Aaron realized their sin. They repented and they sought forgiveness. And the Lord forgave them. But we must understand that even in some difficult passages in the Old Testament, God's anger is always righteous. Now, when we talk about human anger, our anger has the potential to be righteous. More often than not, it's sinful. Uh, and we see a few examples of this in Scripture. And I'm just going to uh, give you a few passages and you think through whether this is righteous anger or sinful anger. First Samuel 20 talks about Saul. Here he's dealing with the fact that he's been rejected by God because of his disobedience. David is up and is the one who is up and an upcoming king of Israel, and Saul knows that. So verse Samuel 20:30 says, "Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, his son, and he said to him, "You son of a perverse, rebellious woman." Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Context is, Jonathan recognized the work of God in David's life. And even though Jonathan should be king next according to hereditary kingship, God had decided elsewhere. And Jonathan had sided with God that David would be the next king. And Saul is rebuking his son because of his choosing to to side with David. So is Saul's anger righteous or sinful? Sinful. Because he opposed God. He's going against the will of God on this. And he's really just responding out of his perceived evil is that his son would not support him, would not be loyal. That his son would be more loyal to God than to him. That's his his perceived evil. Here's another case. In in the same chapter, 1 Samuel 20, later on, um, Saul gets so angry with Jonathan that that um, uh, that, is, that Jonathan sided with him. But Jonathan gets angry with Saul, but not for the reason you might think. In First Samuel twenty thirty four, then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Now is Jonathan's anger righteous or sinful? I would say it is righteous. Again, because he's thinking God's thoughts after him. And David had done nothing against Saul. David would not lift a finger to hurt Saul even when he had the chance. We know that. Because he recognized that Saul was still the Lord's anointed as king for that time. David was not out to hurt Saul, but Saul was out to hurt David. And that was unjust. Jonathan was responding to that perceived evil. In this case, that perceived evil was was correct. And so Jonathan, Jonathan's moral judgment uh, against his father was correct. 
Let's go to another situation. Now David's king. Right? David's kingdom is well established. And at the time where kings go off to war, David doesn't. He goes gazing on a rooftop, sees a particular woman, becomes involved with her. And the Lord sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. And you know the story. Nathan tells David of this, of the, you know, the, the rich owner who had lots of lambs, who went and stole the lamb from this poor family and, and sacrificed that one lamb for a meal instead of taking one of his own. And here's David's response. For 2 Samuel 12, 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, the man in the proverb, the man in the story. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He was blazing mad. He just said, Nathan, tell me who he is. And he's dead. And Nathan had the courage to point his bony finger back at the king and say, you are the man. Was David's anger, was it righteous or sinful? It was actually righteous anger. Even though he was guilty of murder and adultery, he was responding. He saw it. God gave him a story so clear that even, even David, in the midst of a, his embroiled um, love affair with Bathsheba, even though he'd been guilty of murder, he saw the righteousness or the evil of what he had done. And by the Lord's work in his life, you know, he didn't kill Nathan. Nathan was risking his life, but he was doing what God wanted him to do. But he recognized that what Nathan was saying was right. And he humbled himself and repented. And you can read more about that in Psalm uh, 32 and other places. So let's just take stock of what we've learned so far. Anger is our whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Anger is something we do, not something we have. And the source of anger is our heart. There is righteous anger and sinful anger from a human perspective. God's anger is always righteous. Your anger can be righteous, but I'll say that most often it is not. And it's not because I know you that I say that. It's because I know myself. Right? More often than not, our anger is sinful rather than righteous. Now, so you have this knowledge. What are we supposed to do with it? What do we do with it? Well, first, the first thing that we need to realize is that anger is a response that you can control with God's help. You are called to be self-controlled. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, and it's an essential characteristic of someone who's been born again by God. If you're a Christian then you are to be self-controlled and, and self-control is to be part of your, D, your spiritual DNA. And in fact, the scriptures say that someone without self-control is, is unsaved. That's a characteristic of an unbeliever. Uh, just listen to scripture speak. Galatians five twenty-two to 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What? Self-control. Self-control. Against things, these things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ, uh, sorry, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And you have to consider those things as crucified. Titus 1, verses 7 to 9, talks about the qualifications of an overseer, an elder. And you might think, well, this only applies to elders or overseers. 
Well, understand this, re- this is a requirement for elders, overseers, and pastors, but this is actually the model for all believers should strive for. Now listen, the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of dishonest gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'd be able to exhort in sound doctrine and reprove those who contradict. Notice he's not to be quick-tempered, and he's also to be self-controlled, to model that so the congregation can follow his example. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, there Peter gives us a, kind of a, a recipe, if you will, on the things to, to aim for if you want your life to, to matter, uh, not to matter, if you want your life to, to be worthwhile, be worth living so that you're not unfruitful. Listen to him. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So self-control is essential to honoring the Lord, to living for the Lord, to making your life fruitful. I mean, none of us wants our life to to be like fruitless at the end of your life. You look back and you say, boy, I've I've blown it. I've I've wasted all the time God gave me. So to be effective, to be fruitful in God's kingdom, self-control is required. That, that means that God has enabled his children to be self-controlled. So when you feel anger rising in your heart, know that it's something you must control for the glory of God. Right? So how can you control anger? Well, I'm going to get into more of that in just a moment. I just want you to see that you must control your anger. You cannot allow your anger to control you. Even in the case of righteous anger, we'll see that our anger must be self-controlled. Righteous anger isn't an occasion to, to blow up and, and explode and, and uh, to demonstrate all the, the fruits of the flesh. It's, a demonst- it's an opportunity to, to walk in the spirit. Remember in our, our series on conflict resolution, we looked at how it, that we are to walk according to the spirit, to walk in the spirit. We are to walk in love and then walk in humility. All of that's required to control your anger. All those come together and we're just looking at one application really of that and that controlling your anger. Now I just want to help you a minute to know in thinking about your anger, how do you know if you have righteous anger? And again, I want to point to some help from Dr. Robert Jones in his book on uprooting anger. He he warns us that if you look at if you do a survey of all the anger passages in scripture, you will see that nearly all human anger is sinful. Not all of it, but nearly all of it. And so we need to be wise and not jump to the conclusion that our anger is necessarily righteous when we're angry. We always see ourselves in the best possible light. This just shows you how distorted we look. In a conflict, we see ourselves in the best possible light and we see the other person in the worst possible light. Right? That's got to change. You've got to start questioning even your own motives and you've got to think the best of the other person because right? that's what love does. Thinks no evil. Right? That has to change. So can, you need to examine your motives. And, and Robert Jones provides three questions that 
that help us think through whether our anger is righteous or not. First, am I reacting against actual sin? Am I reacting against actual sin? These are questions you should ask yourself. Am I reacting against actual sin? So righteous anger is a response to accurate perception of true evil. Not not just your percep- your perception, but it's it's accurate perception of true evil. When you call something that's true evil, that's something objectively defined in God's word. It's not just your interpretation of a particular passage. It's it's actually sin in the Bible. Right? Am I reacting to actual sin? That's the first question. Second question. Am I focusing on God and his kingdom, his rights, his concerns, rather than mine? Right? So being Godward focused instead of self-focused. Most of the time when we get angry, our, the biggest reason that we're getting angry is because we have, we perceive some kind of evil against what? Against us. We have been hurt. We have been maligned. Or we perceive that we've been maligned. We perceive that someone's attacked us. Maybe, they, maybe that's accurate. Maybe it's not. Right? So am I focused on God and his kingdom? Is that why I'm upset? Third question. Is my anger accompanied by other godly qualities and expressing itself in godly ways? Is my anger expressing itself with other godly qualities and, and expressing itself in godly ways? Righteous anger is self-controlled. It, it keeps its head without cursing or screaming or raging or flying off the handle. Nor does it spiral downward in self-pity or despair. It doesn't ignore people or snub people or withdraw from people. Righteous anger leads to godly expressions of worship, ministry, and obedience. It shows the concern for the well-being of others. It rises to the defense of the oppressed, of oppressed people. It seeks justice for victims. So sometimes you can have righteous anger, but again, if it's it's being expressed in sinful ways then it quickly becomes sinful anger it doesn't stay righteous anger now i want to think again about our kind of model couple model not necessarily in the sense of in a good model of jack and jill that we spoke about earlier jack and jill need to see that their anger towards god and one another is sinful anger that must be controlled that anger is leading them to disaster If the situation doesn't change, they're headed for certain divorce. They need to recognize that their anger is their whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evils. Now, their perception isn't always right, but it is a response they can control. Changing the situation and controlling the anger begins by seeing that their anger flows from the heart. And can can be controlled. They're not at the mercy of their anger. So what do we do here? Recognize that God wants us to be controlled. That God wants us to be self-controlled. And not allow our anger to fly off the handle. To, to destroy those relationships that are around us. And for those that are, that are perhaps not in the faith or... You don't know whether you're in Christ or not. Understand that you're not going to be able to control your anger. You don't have the capacity to control your anger, but God commands you to. So you are in a state of sin before God. So, so what do you do? You repent of your sin, call, on the, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to, 
to forgive your sins and to change your heart, to do a heart transplant in you. And he will do that. Remember, lack of self-control is a sign of being unregenerate. I spent a lot of time on that point because it's so important that, that we rightly understand anger, that God wants us to control it. We can control it with, with help and then it flows from our heart and God wants to change our heart. But let's go to point two. To control anger, we need to seek to glorify God as our highest priority. To control anger, we've got to bridle our passions. We've got to pull them back by seeking not to avenge ourselves, but, but to pursue God's glory first and foremost. Get your eyes off yourself and your desires. Stop living just for yourself. In these cases where we have sinful anger, we need a life recalibration. And we get that life recalibration from our Lord for living from Him. Turn to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. Just going to read the first few verses there. Colossians chapter 3. Read the first five verses. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. So you are to live a, a new, as a new person, a, the new man. You are to, to proclaim the, the proclamation that Paul declared in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We've got to see that the reason we're living is not for ourselves and not for our own glory, not for our own pleasures. Now God will, will allow you to experience many pleasures, but you cannot serve yourself first and foremost or you will just end up with with explosive anger. Again, going back to Jack and Jill, they need to get their eyes off of themselves and they need to see things from God's perspective. They need to stop living for themselves and seek to live for God. That they, they would need to stop serving all the idols of their heart, all the desires that they have, the cravings are driving them to anger. They need to focus on God, to worship Him, to, to worship Him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so, you just need to realize that if, if you live with the predominant goal of protecting yourself, of seeing yourself protected or, or your own interests protected, you're going to have sinful, explosive anger. Your, your life goal should not be to make sure that you're comfortable and that you are self-respect, you are respected by those around you, getting the respect you deserve. Your goal as a believer is to worship the Lord, living to serve Him, putting His priorities first and foremost. So when you get into a conflict or potential conflict, your anger begins to rise. Let that be a trigger to instantly think, what response most glorifies God? What response most glorifies God, right? That's going to take work because the natural sinful self is going to be there and it's going to want to blow up and sometimes blowing up feels really good to our unregenerate self or the old self, right? It just feels good. You get, you get that weight off your shoulders. That's why psychologists will say, you know, you need to vent. Well, no, you don't. You need to repent, right? Pour out your heart to God. 
right? Be self-controlled, right? Ask what response most glorifies God. It's hard to do at that huge moments. That's why you have a battle plan beforehand, before you get there, right? So that you can do that. Third point, to control anger, you must be slow to anger. And I need to move quickly here. James 1, you can, you can uh, listen or just turn there and read with me. James chapter 1, James chapter 1. Verses 19 to 22. Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in gentleness receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Notice the context. The context is really about hearing the word of God. We're to be quick to hear the word of God, right? We are to be quick to listen to the word of God and slow to get angry at the word of God. Right? That's the context. It's not just anger in general. It's anger towards God. Right? It, it, is a, it is a principle that applies on a wider scale for sure, as we'll show in a minute. But being slow to anger is commanded of all believers. Be slow to get angry. Right? Be slow. Now, um, uh, hear a prayer from Nehemiah 9.17. And this isn't Nehemiah's prayer. This is actually Jeshua's prayer, who was a Levite. And some of the Levites were praying. This was after the deportation. Uh, they were to Babylon. They came back to Babylon in Nehemiah 9.17. This is a prayer of Jeshua and the Levites. Speaking about the Israelites and how they refused to listen to God. They said, they refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, speaking to God, your wondrous deeds which you did among them. So they became stiff-necked and gave themselves a chief to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of lavish forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. Just think about what God's doing there. Right? The Israelites, even after all that they went through, were still being disobedient. And God what? God was gracious and compassionate. He would not forsake them. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. If God is slow to anger, that means he has the capability to help you be slow to anger. And in fact, we're commanded to imitate God in all the ways that human beings can. We're not called to be little gods, right? We're not omnipresent or omniscient or, all, you know, we don't have all power that he has or anything like that. But you are called to be loving because God is love. You're also called to be slow to anger because God is slow to anger. You misrepresent God as a believer when, you're, when you get angry quickly. Right? That's stepping on all of our toes. The Lord wants us to be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Think about some of these Proverbs. 14.29 He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered quick exalts folly. Or Proverbs fifteen eighteen, a hot tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Proverbs sixteen thirty two, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. Proverbs seventeen twenty seven, he who holds back his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of discernment. Proverbs twenty five fifteen, when one is slow to anger, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. We must be slow to anger. We cannot 
allow our emotions just to explode. Again, think about Jack and Jill. Jack's had a, had a hard day at work, worked a long day at work. He's tired. He's looking forward to, to actually seeing his wife. She's ho- he's hoping that she'll have a, a nice greeting for him, a nice warm greeting, and that the supper and the kids will be and the house will be all in order when he gets home. And when he gets home, he finds that's not exactly the case. His wife's also had a hard day at home. Nothing's gone right. The kids have needed uh, frequent correction all day long. And to make matters worse, she's not feeling good. So how does Jack, how should Jack respond? The old Jack would come in and walk through the door and get angry because his wife's not there with a warm greeting. The house is a mess and dinner's not ready. The old Jack would say, he had asked the question that no husband should ever ask. What have you been doing all day? Which implies she's been doing nothing all day, right? That's what you're implying. That's so wrong. Lacks compassion. It lacks all the characteristics of love that a husband is called to, to exercise to his wife, towards his wife. But a transformed Jack would be slow to get angry, would pray and ask God and actually confess sin. Lord, I've been thinking about myself the whole way home. Help me to think about my wife and my children. How can I serve her? How can I serve my children? How can I demonstrate Christ to them? That won't happen unless Jack's slow to anger. If you're slow to anger, you have time to think, time to respond in the right way. Just quick you're going to respond all the wrong ways and you're going to blow the situation up and it'll be, it'll be um, you'll suffer a lot, of, a lot of damage. But we must be slow to anger. And when, when you think about all the past times you've been quick to anger, repent of those. Ask, ask the Lord to forgive you. Maybe you need to go ask your spouse or your children or a friend or a coworker to forgive you for being, to be, for being um, quick to be angry when, when you haven't been slow to get angry. Well, I need to move on to, to, to point four. To control anger, avoid all sinful responses. Avoid all sinful responses. If we're going to control anger and make sure that anger is righteous, we have to, to, to see that the anger is never an occasion to sin. And we feel like it sometimes. When somebody sinned against us, what do we want to do? We want to lash out. We want to get back at them. We want to respond in the flesh. We cannot do that. Even if you have righteous anger, if you're in, um, well, turn to Ephesians 4. I want to point out some things from Ephesians 4 to you. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Uh, New American Standard Bible adds in yet. That's why I didn't read it. It's an italicized, say, that they're, they're inserting it. But in, but in the Greek, there's actually not a strong contrast there. It's a, it's a connective. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let sin go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So there's a lot about this verse and I don't have time to explain. Commentators debate, is this a command towards righteous anger or not? Or is it simply saying that just, um, you know, when you sin, or, or sorry, when you're angry, don't sin, which is kind of how the New International Version in, interprets that. But we can look at that when we do our study of Ephesians, which hopefully we'll do in 2023. We'll get into that. Uh, we'll, we'll dig into that verse. But here's what I want to point out in a larger context. If, if you look at the, the paragraphing 
of this. Verse 26 uh, comes in a larger paragraph that flows from verse 17 to verse 32. And in verse 17 to 32, it's a context about, about doing away with the old man, about putting aside the old man and putting on the new man. The old man is the old regenerate person. The new man is, the, is who you are in Christ. Right? So it's a whole passage talking about really about righteousness and holiness. And, and we see that um, in, in verse 24. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Then verses 25 through 32 give us specific ways of fleshing that out. What does it look like to, to get rid of the old man and put on the new man? Right? So why is that important? It's important because verse 25 is one of the ways, sorry, verse 26 is one of the ways in which we are to demonstrate the new man, put off the old man. So we're to be see, angry and not sin. Not sin. Right? The, again, anger, even righteous anger, is never an occasion to sin. So a believer is to handle their sin in a drastically different way than an unbeliever. Just like a believer's marriage should be drastically different than an unbeliever's marriage, you need to handle anger as a believer in a drastically different way than the world handles it or the way that you used to handle it. So that's what's clear from this text. God wants us to handle anger in a radically different way that exalts him that shows the new life of Christ working within us. So as a believer, you must not allow your whole person response of moral judgment against perceived evil to be an occasion or excuse to sin. That's just off limits, right? How many times have you seen in various churches or by various Christians, they're responding to an actual hurt or an actual evil, but the way they respond is like horrible. They're gossiping, they're slandering, they're screaming, they're yelling, sometimes even in the services. That's just wrong. That's clearly wrong. And yes, you're reacting to an evil, but you yourself are doing evil. So never use the occasion of anger or a perception of evil, even if it's an accurate perception of true evil, as an occasion for you to fly off the handle and demonstrate the the works of the flesh instead of the fruit of the spirit. Seek to be perfectly controlled and just in your response. And you can do this because the Lord knows how to do this. He's the one that sets the trail for us. We're following him and he gives us his spirit and his word to instruct us and empower us to do it. It can be done. Uh, Alexander Strzok notes in his, in his book, If You Bite and Devour One Another, he says, righteous anger should energize us to fight injustice, moral corruption, and false doctrine. For example, he gives the example of the whores of the slave trade as, as motivating William Wilberforce to fight for more than 40 years to abolish the slave trade in England. 40 years! He didn't resort to terrorism, blowing up parliament, killing those members of parliament who, assassinating them, who, who um, you know, voted against him, voted him down. So you and I must fight sin must actively fight sin when, when we feel anger welling up within us, when we're in a conflict and maybe we've done nothing to, to um, help contribute to the conflict. We just find ourselves in the conflict. Even then, be slow to anger. Don't allow yourself to respond sinfully. The last point I want to make this, this morning is to control anger, we must deal with it promptly. And this flows from Ephesians 4, 
26, last part is 26 and verse 27. It says, do not let the sin go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. God wants people to deal with their anger promptly. The wording, do not let your son go down the anger, should not be interpreted literally in this case. I mean, you could interpret it literally, but if you interpret it literally, you might say, well, I can be angry until sundown. And I love it in the summer because it doesn't, sun doesn't go down until 10 o'clock. And therefore, I can relish in my anger until then. No, 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 no. Right? The, the point of the passage is that you deal with your anger quickly. It's urging you to deal with your anger quickly, even, even when it's righteous anger. And, and most commentators, many commentators think that verse 26 is talking about righteous anger. So it's saying, deal with that quickly. In other words, don't let it stew. Now, how do you do this? Well, examine your heart for any traces of sin. Confess and repent of anything unholy. Ask God to help you deal with your anger in ways that honor him. How do you, how do you deal with your anger when it's like a circumstance totally out of your control? Maybe you're not involved with it, but because of all the media coming in, all your consuming media, you see things that are unjust, you know, like mutilating children that we're doing, trying to change their gender, right? That's just wrong. That's a moral evil, right? So how do we... How do we not go to bed angry about these things? The easy you can't control. You, you go to your Lord in, in prayer. Right? You pour out your, your heart to him. You ask him to work. You, you take your burden, which is upon you, and you cast it upon the Lord. The Lord knows how to bring about justice. The Lord knows how to, to bring sinners to repentance or bring sinners to judgment. Either way, he gets the glory. And scriptures tell us that he knows how to hold the, the, um, the sinners under, under punishment. He knows how to put them in a holding pattern. It looks like they're not from our perspective, but he knows how to hold them. And just waiting judgment day for that to be done. So recognize that God is perfectly just, will bring about perfect justice for every wrong on this earth. He will do that. Trust him. Give that burden to him. But recognize this, if you hold on to it, you are actually giving Satan an opportunity. Look at verse 27. Do not give the devil an opportunity, implying that if you hold on to your anger, even righteous anger, and it's stewing, it can quickly turn to sinful anger. And you give the Satan an opportunity in your life to wreak more havoc. Now, it, it would be wrong and Robert Jones notes this, it'd be wrong to blame Satan for your anger. He says, while it's erroneous to blame anger, Satan for our anger, it is naive to isolate him from it. I mean, he wants to take advantage of your missteps. And he wants to use those to cause destruction of your life and the relationships around you. He wants you to sin so that you won't honor your Lord and God. He wants you to dishonor God by acting in ways that are unbecoming of a Christian to act. So you've got to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6.11, and realize that this is a time to honor the Lord. Right? You, you cannot allow yourself to go to bed right? or to allow that anger to stew. Deal with your anger promptly. And again, just think about Jack and Jill. Early in their, early in their marriage, they developed the, the bad habit of just going to bed angry. They, 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 Jack would blow up. Jill would, would just go away and, and withdraw from him. And they wouldn't work anything out. And, and Jack would usually sleep on the couch. 
But in the morning, things were emotions were calmed down. You know, they could they could muster a smile and you know give each other a hug and and get on with their day. But over those eleven years of that pattern, the hurt had built up significantly, where that that was now something Satan was taking advantage of to to destroy their relationship. They they couldn't function normally, and. That that bad habit at the very beginning developed into full-scale war later in their marriage. But just review what we covered. If you're going to control your anger so you can glorify God, not sin against Him, that you can be a blessing to those around you instead of being a curse to them, then you must seek first to honor God as your foremost priority in life. You must be slow to anger and not respond in sinful ways. You must seek to handle your anger quickly. You can know all of this, but not listen and be a doer. So again, I just urge you to be a doer of the word. I'll just read from Colossians. Colossians uh, verses 2 to 16. So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put in a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ uh, dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. So when you feel the anger rising, pray. You remind yourself of God's wisdom and his mandates. You remind yourself that, that people are watching, unbelievers are watching how you handle your anger. Don't speak or act until you have control of your emotions. If you struggle to control your emotions, ask those to pray for you. If, if you sin in anger, be quick to confess your sin. Be humble in that regard and confess your sin and seek forgiveness. If you struggle with anger, with sinful anger, avail yourself that the help of God provides. Right? Go to those passages in Scripture, some of which we, we mentioned tonight. Memorize them. Meditate upon them. Pray and ask God for help. Ask for godly counsel for a, another man or woman to come alongside you and help you and pray for you. And it may be that if you're struggling with anger, it could be because you're associating with the wrong people. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25 say, that we're not to associate with someone given to anger. That doesn't mean you just break off the friendship, right? So if you're a believer, you have a responsibility. If that person's a believer, you have a responsibility to go confront their sin. We're going to talk about that in a future message. But you have a responsibility to go confront their, their angry sin, right? But if they will not listen, or if it's an unbeliever who's just constantly angry, even if they're a good friend, the scriptures say beware of that kind of friendship because it's going to influence you more than you can influence that relationship. So if you and I are going to glorify God in handling conflict, you must control your anger. And with the Lord's help, you can be slow to anger. You can seek Him first. You can avoid sinful responses and quickly deal with your anger. In a world full of angry and violent people, and that's increasing, right? Christians must not be characterized like that. We are to be the peacemakers. We are to be the peacemakers. We are to respond in a way that honors the name of Christ and cooperates with 
the work of the Holy Spirit. And I just urge you to put on new thoughts, new attitudes, new responses that honor your Lord and God. And it's only when you're properly dressed in Christ-like character that you can handle conflict properly. That, that you can be used as a peacemaker. They can be used as a witness for Christ in, in handling your anger in a Christ-honoring fashion. And, and see conflict, as, as unpleasant as it is, see conflict and that anger that rises within you as an opportunity to shine the, the wisdom and love of Jesus Christ. Rather than the opposite will happen if you, um, if you give in to your own you know, self, your own flesh, and pursuing the things that would naturally come to you. Right? Pursue the wisdom of God and honoring God above all else. Control your anger. Well, let's pray. Our Lord, we've covered a lot of ground today and or a lot of difficult ground touching all of us and how we, Lord, how we responded in angry ways and sinful ways. Lord, I just pray that you would use these truths to change us and transform us, to transform how we think and to transform how we react and how we act when anger, uh, we find ourselves getting angry or in an angry situation. Oh, Lord God, just please, please help us to glorify and honor you and help us to do what is right, being slow to anger, Lord God, and avoiding sin and how we uh, respond, our response our, in anger. Help us to avoid that sin and just be quick to, to see that resolved, even if it's just coming to you in prayer and asking for your help. Lord, you set a perfect example of how to anger, how to handle anger, and I just ask that you would help us to follow your example for your glory and honor.